You know, one of the things I love is as we are growing as a church, somebody had actually mentioned the other Sunday that we look like, or the other day that we look somewhat like a United Nations. And we get to hear people from other nations reading God's word and, and praying. And there are times when I think it would be great to hear the reading of God's word in Chinese or Spanish or in Russian or, and there's other languages that are represented here, and to be able to celebrate in that way. But also, there are times when we have gathered together in prayer and you hear languages uh, other than English being shared in prayer. And I think that is so fantastic and is so exciting. Thank you. Thank you, Albert, for the reading of God's word this afternoon. So as he read, we looked at Nehemiah. We're going to be staying there for uh, the rest of this afternoon. Nehemiah chapter 1, starting at verse 4, and we'll go and look at all the way to uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. I don't know about you, but there are times when I, uh, uh, quite often, in fact, I will pick up a newspaper, usually on Fridays. That's my day to read the paper and to do some of the puzzles. I'm not that successful at them, but I, I do attempt them, and I'm by myself, so nobody has to know. Well other than now when I preach to you. But this weekend, as I was following the news, I was shocked and I was saddened by various events that were going on in this world. Uh, over 2,600 people dead, the last report that I read, I, uh, because of an earthquake in Morocco. That was just last week. There are now, the count is up to about 20,000 people who are lost or dead because of flooding in Libya just days ago. I read also in the paper of a woman who was murdered just because she broke up with her boyfriend. And, and you could go on and on reading some of these things. I mean, the question I have for us this afternoon is this. How does our view of God line up with such real-life evil? How? how? How do we make theological sense out of ISIS continuing to kill Kurds in Syria? Hmm. You know... Many great thinkers and philosophers throughout the ages have, I would say, stumbled at this very problem of pain and suffering and evil and tragedy. Some, in fact, ultimately rejecting Christianity because of it. Even C.S. Lewis, who offered perhaps the most articulate explanation of the problem of pain in the 20th century, I think, saw his arguments fade in significance as he watched the onslaught of cancer in his wife's body. He, Lewis said, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life and death to you. I think that's profound. So again, let me ask, how does our view of God line up with real-life evil, with tragedy. Maybe ask it this way, who is this God that we worship? Now, in this passage that Albert read so well this afternoon, we see that Nehemiah looked to God as the one to make sense out of the tragedy in his life. And in doing so, here's what Nehemiah found. He found an eternal hope a meaningful purpose. He found solid answers to tough questions and, and a rock-hard stability to face life. You see, church, what happened was that his view of God was what enabled him to take the steps necessary to face the broken walls of his life head-on. And in doing so, he not only discovered a God who would help, but he discovered a God who surpassed, who exceeded his expectations. 
Now, as we unpack the prayer of Nehemiah today, my prayer is that each one of us will encounter the very same God who Nehemiah worshiped. Because if we do, we too, like Nehemiah, will be able to trust him to deal personally with the broken walls of our lives. And in fact, we'll also, like Nehemiah, discover a God who exceeds our expectations. And won't that be a great thing if we discover that God? Right, church? Now, the first picture we see of Nehemiah is, as Bryce, by the way, shared last week, was when he's just found out about the walls that had been broken down around Jerusalem. They had been burnt. The gates had been burnt with fire. The people there are are absolutely struggling. It's a tough time. It's a tough day. In fact, God is not even worse. He thinks God is not receiving the glory that he deserves in that city from all of the nations around it. And, and, And you know what it does? As we read, it immediately causes Nehemiah to weep. He breaks down in his heart. He he begins to mourn for days, not just hours, not just for the afternoon, and sat back and and said, okay, I got to get over this, and flicks on Netflix. That's not what he did. He mourns for days, and he begins to pray. So here's the thing. Nehemiah, the first thing we discover about Nehemiah is that he looked upward. That's his first go-to, upward. Listen to verse 4 of chapter 1. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. By the way, the majority of chapter 1 is Nehemiah's prayer. Later we see in chapter 2 that he, he, he's the cupbearer to the king. And at that time, he asks the king for permission to go and to, and to help the people in Jerusalem. So, The reason I tell you that is because there's something interesting that we can discover here. And it's though it might seem like it was only hours or days uh, between hearing the news and speaking to the king, it was actually months that had passed before he actually acted on something. I think it's important to know that. You see, he didn't immediately hear the news and steal across the desert on his great steed. He didn't fabricate a reason to leave Persia. He didn't even share his burden with other concerned Jews that we read about anyways. No. Nehemiah chose the most difficult option, which is he chose to wait. He knew what so many of us had a, have a hard time remembering. It's this, what could be and should be can't be until God is ready for it to be. So what did he do? He waited. And while waiting... He wept, he, he prayed, he fasted, he, he humbly and diligently turned his gaze upward to the God of the heavens. I mean, that's so different from me, I have to tell you. I, I'm so quick to act. We see a need, we're like, let's do something about it. Let's jump on this. I mean, which, by the way, is a good impulse. It's not a bad thing to do. I mean, we want to respond to need, good. But, but here's the thing, if we're not careful, we're going to bypass this picture that we see in Nehemiah of an upward focus first before any kind of outward action. So Nehemiah, his first impulse was to fall on his knees before God of the heavens when he saw a need being presented to him and a need around him. Listen, church, if we're to be instruments in the hands of God as a people, by the way, we are in exile in a foreign country as disciples of Jesus Christ. We must become a people of heartfelt 
patient prayer. You know, we can only mourn for the right things, the ask for the right things, seek the right things, prioritize the right things when we take our cues from God. Because if you take your cues from Steve, he will steer you wrong. Get them from God. When we wait on him for our orders, he's the one who rebuilds the walls after all, doesn't he? We can't be part of the rebuilding if we don't wait to hear his instruction. Listen, I can't imagine an army being a, any success in battle if they refuse to listen to their commanding officer's orders. If the radio communication goes down, guess what? In trouble. They're in trouble. And, and you know what? The church is absolutely no different. We're engaged in a spiritual battle church much more than we ever can realize today. And we have to be listening for God's instructions or we're going to find ourselves wandering aimlessly. In fact, concerning the church in Colossae, Paul said this, we have continued praying for you ever since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you a complete understanding of what he wants to do in your lives. We ask him to make you wise with spiritual wisdom. That's how we're to pray for King's Table Church. We're, we're to pray for understanding God's wisdom and for God's direction. I'm going to say that again, just in case you missed it, in case you fell asleep at that moment. That's how we're to pray for King's Table Church. We're to pray for his understanding, his wisdom, and for his direction. So, like Nehemiah, we have to look upward first before we set out. But also, like Nehemiah, we have to look inward. Notice how Nehemiah begins his prayer in verse 5. Lord the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. I really believe, I am convinced, in fact, that in the outpouring of praise is how we proclaim our wonder of God. It's when we praise him, we, we proclaim our wonder of God. When we pray and when we sing, the words aren't directed to each other, but to God himself. And in that act of praise, we find when we do that, that we're changed inside. When we see God for who he is, it changes us. It transforms us. An internal transformation takes place as we recognize God for who he really is. When we get that, church, we're declaring our dependence on God and we're calling on his power and his strength to equip us for the work that he's called us to accomplish. In our praise of God, we're admitting that we're just a bunch of mere human beings that don't have the ability to save the world, that don't have the strength to keep on going, that don't have the staying power to keep on keeping on. And that's okay to admit that. In fact, it's good that we admit that. We're saying to God, well, we don't have all the, those abilities that we know that he does. And we're asking him to fill and sustain us through the struggle whatever the struggle is that we're facing at any given time. And understanding because of who God is and who we are, that God has the ability to change us inside and to use us for his ultimate glory. And that church is a good thing, a very good thing. Listen to Isaiah 40, 21 to 31. Have you never heard or understood? Don't you know that the Lord is the everlasting God? 
the creator of all the earth. He, he never grows faint or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to those who are tired and worn out. That, that's us. He gives us power. He offers strength to the weak. That's me. Even youths will become exhausted and young men will give up. But those who wait on the Lord will find, what does it say? New strength. They will fly high on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. That sounds like a pretty good deal to me. That doesn't sound like me today. But with God, that is how we are to be and will be through him. And so what God is doing is he's, is he's asking us to place our dependence on him to see us through whatever it is that we need to go through. Wherever you are today, ask him for the dependence to see you through. It doesn't depend on me. It does not depend on me. I mean, thank God for that because I'm way too weak, but rather it, it, it's allowing God to work in us and, and then through, through us. And it all begins with the acknowledgement of who God is. So that's how Nehemiah begins. He, he begins his prayer with exalting God, praising his superiority, praising his strength, his sovereignty, his sacredness, his holiness, his sincerity. He praises God for who he is. Why do you think we sing when we gather together? We're praising God for who he is. But then notice in verse six that he prays this. He prays a day and night. Huh. that's the kind of praying that, that I, I think we need to see demonstrated in all of our lives, in, in the life of all of us here at King's Table Church. You know, not the kind of prayer that stops after a time or two, but the kind of prayer that, you know, gets at it, that, that goes to God and stays before God until it gets what, it, what you came after. You and I will Pray like that when we see within ourselves, you see this, the pride that we used to have is now humbled to realize that it, it's nothing about me. It, it's, it's nothing about you. In fact, it's all about God. We can pray like this because I've been changed inside. You've been changed inside, you see. That is why Nehemiah prays as he does. Moving on in verse 6 and 7, it shows us a man who is humbled before God, seeing himself as he truly is. You know who he is? He gets it. He's a sinner in need of grace. As this man prays, he begins to confess his sins as an individual and also, even further, the sins of his people as a nation. He even confesses the sins of his fathers. What we see here is a man with a beautiful, repentant heart. Church, this is essential in seeing our prayers answered. I mean, I think it's important to understand that, that Nehemiah was not just interested in talking about where others went wrong. He's not pointing the fingers all over the place and saying our nation has really messed up. He, he, he's, he's willing to see where he himself had missed the boat with God. He began looking inside. We have a saying here at King's Table Church. Repent often, forgive freely, extend grace continually, and love fully. But it always begins with repentance. And where do you repent? You don't repent for somebody else. You repent for yourself. And that's where EMI began. It's about looking inward and me getting my heart right with God. Listen, church, praise isn't about me. It's not about declaring the greatness of the one we praise as we recognize how much less we are in comparison. 
It's about getting our heart right with God. Then in verses 8 to 10, we see that Nehemiah begins to remind God of the promise that he made to Israel. He says this, starting in verse 8, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. So he gets that, which is why he's repenting. He knows that he and the people have done that. But then goes on in verse 9, but if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. You know, he doesn't do this to remind God about something that he thinks God forgot. I mean, it's not like when my son or daughter come to me to remind me that I was going to take them to the mall or out for a burger or something because I got all tied up in a project and forgot. God doesn't forget, unlike me, unlike you. In reminding God about his promises, he's, he's actually reminding himself. And he's deepening his resolve and faith to ask for his needs in prayer, knowing, listen, if God promised, he's going to get what he asks for because God promised. He knows that God stakes his, his uh, reputation, in fact, on the accuracy of his word. Look at Psalm 138. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. For, listen to this, you have exalted above all things your name and your word. God takes serious his promises. And as Nehemiah prays, he reminds God that he, is, he isn't the only one involved in this prayer effort. He gets that. There's others in exile who, by the way, are praying uh, besides himself. He, he has seen himself inside himself. And as a result, he is not so self-opinionated, so uncharitable as to think that he alone loves the house of the Lord and prays for it. He believes that God has many, many praying servants outside of himself. And by the way, Nehemiah values the prayers of his fellow servants, and he feels supported then by even his own requests, knowing that these prayers are going on. By the fact that he was one of a crowd of pleaders before God. Truth is, church, God loves a prayer meeting. You see, it's as we praise God together, it's as we pray together, whether through our through our times of prayer or our singing times to him, that we find a renewal of strength and, and a reestatement of his purpose as a church. So we first learn. We look upward. Always our go-to is upward to God. But what that does is it honestly causes us to honestly look inward, which, by the way, is what prepares our hearts to look outward. Look at verse 11 of chapter 1. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. I love that final statement, king's cupbearer, here at the end of verse 11. It seems to indicate that he knew that who he was and where he was at that moment was no accident. It was, he was the cupbearer for a reason. Listen, church, regardless of your situation in life, whether it's at work or at school or at play or, or, or at home or wherever it is, you need to know that it's no accident. God has placed you where he has for 
for a purpose. You might think you chose it, but God has placed you there. More specifically, he's placed you where you are for his purpose, on purpose. God has never once said, oops, I didn't plan for that to happen. The question is, then what's your purpose? Well, we're all clearly called to equip, to minister, and to worship other Christ followers. But I think our main calling here at King's Table Church is to take every chance to make much of Jesus. And in so doing, to to proclaim the gospel. That's what we're here for. We're all about telling God's story, not our own. Because Jesus is the news that the whole world absolutely needs to hear. Right, church? You know, the Times reporter, it was, I think it was back in 1985, uh, in uh, New, Phil, uh, uh, New Philadelphia, Ohio. Never heard of that city before until I read this article. They reported in a 1985 uh, article about a celebration in New Orleans. Uh, it was uh, at a New Orleans municipal pool, to be exact. Party was being held around a pool uh, to celebrate the first summer ever that in memory without a drowning at any pool. So in honor of the occasion, 200 uh, celebrants came and gathered, including 100 certified lifeguards. As the party was breaking up, four of the lifeguards on duty began to clear the pool, and they found a fully dressed body in the deep end. True story. They tried to revive Jerome Moody, but it was too late. He had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating their successful season. Pretty sad. As I read that, I was thinking about, uh, uh, to myself, uh, just wondering how many visitors and strangers and family and friends are among us or living beside us or working across the hall from us or attending school with us and are drowning in loneliness and hurt and doubt. You know, we Christians, (laughs) we absolutely have reason to celebrate absolutely have reason to celebrate, but our purpose, as the old hymn says, is to rescue the perishing. And often, they're right next to us. Let's make sure we're not like the lifeguards in New Orleans. We, our look needs to be outwards to where the people are. In fact, Jesus gave a, a wake-up call to disciples that I think bears repeating in John 4. My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me, and from finishing his work. Do you think the work of harvesting will not begin until the summer ends four months from now? Look around you. Vast fields are ripening all around us and are ready now for the harvest. Church, do you realize that the greatest days of the church are still ahead of us? Jesus himself told us that the fields are ripe, ready for harvest. That means we can know that the potential is absolutely great. It's huge. So let's continue to reach outward to those in need and take every chance to make much of Jesus. So we look upward, we look inward, and then we look outward, and now we move forward. Listen to chapter 2 in verses 4 and 5. Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, if it pleases the king, And if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. 
a little background to help us understand what's going on here. By the way, the kings of Persia were demanded absolute obedience. They were pretty tough lot. Father of King Artaxerxes, by the way, his name was uh, Xerxes the Great. Uh, you might remember him if you've ever read the story of Esther. He's a major character, in fact, in the book of Esther, where he there's a central drama that circulates around and swirls about whether he's going to permit uh, Esther to live once she's committed this uh, uh, capital offense of approaching his throne uh, un, uninvited. That's Artaxerxes' uh, father. Artaxerxes himself murdered two of his brothers, by the way, in uh, asserting his claim to the throne. And according to the ancient historian Plutarch, by the way, he's actually considered one of the gentlest of the Persian kings. So you can imagine they're a tough lot. So it's in this context that we find Nehemiah as cupbearer to that very king. And he has got this daily immediate access to Artaxerxes. And the position required the king's full trust. I mean, after all, he is the cupbearer to the king. He's responsible for the king's safety from anybody who might tamper with, with the wine. So obviously huge trust in this guy. So in keeping uh, with the protocol to please the king, Nehemiah always had to make sure that he had this pleasant demeanor about him. Always had a smile on his face. Always sang the best songs. Always did the best dances. I don't know how he did his serving, but he would have had to been in a good mood at all times in front of the king. But this was such a deep grief that he experienced about his people in Jerusalem, he could not hide it any longer. So the king asks him about it. Conversation between the king and Nehemiah offers, I think, several insights into the, I, I think for us, just the right way to approach the throne of men and the throne of God. First of all, we see that Nehemiah displayed the appropriate respect to this king. We, we might not like our mayor, our counselor, or our president, or prime minister, our boss, whoever that might be. But we don't have license to be disrespectful as disciples of Jesus Christ to those in leadership positions. And if you don't believe me, then just pick up Romans 13. You can read that on your own time. But secondly, Nehemiah places ultimate trust in God, not the king, right? Notice the brief. In fact, there's a brief millisecond prayer that he offers before answering the king where he says, so I prayed to the God of the heavens and then answered the king. So as the king asks, he goes, Lord, help me. <laughs> now I'm going to ask the question. Even as he prepares to make this bold request that could change his life, he put himself under the authority of God. Finally, when God opened the door of opportunity for Nehemiah now to make a difference, he, he was willing to walk through boldly. He, he was ready to move forward, even if it meant he'd lose, not just his job in this case, like some of us might, not just his position, but his life. So he asked the question he had not only been waiting to ask, but had been praying and fasting about. He asked the king's permission to rebuild the walls, to rebuild Jerusalem. But if you notice, he then takes another step. He then asks for letters of protection. Think you're pushing your luck a little? But then he doesn't stop there. He goes all in. He goes further. He asks the king for materials from his very own forest. 
Not only do I want you to send me out to build these walls, but I need you to back me financially, king. This takes a lot of guts. But, you know, Nehemiah was prepared to move forward with boldness because he had first gone to God upward. He then, looking inward, was humbled to know that he wasn't going to make a difference in the king's heart unless God did it anyways. And because he had submitted his life to God's mission, not his own, he looked outward to a great need that was beyond his ability, but did so knowing that God had called him to be a part of that mission. And he was able to move forward then because Nehemiah knew something that the king didn't know. He understood that God can work through everyone, even a Persian king, to accomplish his will. Listen, church, know this. Please know this, that God can use a Persian king. He can use Nehemiah, and he can use you and me here in Cole Harbor. He's put you where you are for a reason. Nehemiah might have been a cupbearer for years before the moment came, but when it did, he was prepared because of his relationship with God through prayer, and when the time happened, he moved forward. You might think, though, yeah, but we're not special like the cupbearer to a king. That's a pretty sweet deal. My life is so ordinary. <laughs> if you think that way, then remember that you're more than a cupbearer to a king. You're the son or daughter to the king. But also remember that we own the ordinary. The ordinary doesn't own us. Owning the ordinary means that we pray for opportunities, just ordinary opportunities to share the gospel. And then we go knock on our neighbor's door. We plead for strength to resist lustful temptation, and then we text or call a friend. We beg God to guide us with some hard decision, and then you don't just flip a coin, but we research, we seek counsel, and we think hard. And then when God answers in our ordinary actions, we make a big deal about it because it's God who's doing the answering. We marvel that the living God is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We praise him for equipping us with everything good to do his will. We thrill in the experience of God's answering prayer in our ordinary act of doing, of the simple act of moving forward, of, of being men and women of action, even when it feels so ordinary. Listen, if God is really who he claims that he is, and by the way, he is, and if the church is really God's movement to change the world, and by the way, it is, then that means that we, that's us who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who are part of the church, have the power and the purpose to accomplish what God wants to get done. Do you catch that? What God wants to get done, and he's going to use us for that. And so we must be people who look to the future and we move forward boldly, owning the ordinary, one stone at a time, one prayer at a time, one ordinary moment at a time. As we, as we wrap up this message, I want us to spend some time just thinking and reflecting and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you this afternoon. Nehemiah's prayer is a recounting of Israel's past and, and, and God's goodness. And yes, it's filled with, with reminders of the people's fickleness and failures and hurts and, and pains. Throughout, their rebellion is acknowledged, and, but their sin is confessed. Yes, <laughs> this is a wayward people. But, but how does God respond? How does God respond? 
Who is God toward a wayward people? Look at verse 9 again of chapter 1. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. Who is this God? This is a God who defies our expectations, church. He, he's the one whom love and compassion just pour out of his very heart. He, this is a God who, who does not harbor grudges. He, he enjoys washing sinners in a, in a flood of love. He delights in renewal and reconciliation and bringing us back to the broken walls of our lives to begin rebuilding. This is who he is. In Jesus, he showed us that this is who he is. Church, listen, Jesus came to you and me to fickle, faltering, sinful, ordinary you and me. The ones whose walls were broken. And guess what he did? He defied our expectations. He went to the cross. He endured the agony of separation from the Father so that you and I can stand on the foundations of a better than ever wall restored by a loving God. If you're here this afternoon and you don't know God, and yet you know that your life is broken, that maybe the walls of your life have been broken down, know today that you too can know that this God, this Jesus, is so ready to welcome you into a wall-building project a renewed relationship with him. All it takes is asking for it, opening yourself up to it. And guess what? He will exceed your expectations. Who is this God? This is Nehemiah's God. This is our God.